0: Good morning. morning. Hey, like Ryan said, um, if you're a guest with us or you call this place your church home, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm kind of amped up for this morning. I'm really excited for all that we have in in front of us, all that we've been singing about, just this whole morning of celebration. I'm just glad that you're here with us this morning. Hey, uh, today we're going to celebrate the resurrection, but I want you to do something for me. I want you to imagine, if you can, uh, 2,000 years ago what it would have been like. To encounter Jesus. No one ever taught like this man. And no one ever lived like him. And you, you just find yourself captivated by him to the point where you want to become one of his followers. And so that's exactly what you do. You give up everything. I mean, you give up your job, you give up your family, you give up your ambition and everything, and you begin to follow him, and it's this incredible journey. And you listen to him teach and you watch him heal people. You watch all this incredible stuff, and for a long time, it's this wild, incredible journey that now your life gets to be a part of. And you don't mind the fact that you had to give up so many different things, and there's a threat along the way, because you're convinced that this guy, this guy and his community are going to change the entire world. You're just convinced of it. And then one Sunday morning, you head into Jerusalem. And as you head in, the people, man, they're celebrating. They want to make him king. But he refused to be that kind of king. And then things begin to spiral out of control, and they spiral out of control really fast. By that Friday, a Friday we call Good Friday, this guy you'd given up everything, everything to follow, is dead. Everything that you'd given up is now gone, and you find yourself in deep despair. So Sunday morning, you head to the tomb because you've really got nothing else to do. And it's all so confusing because when you get there, the tomb is empty and this giant stone that was holding them in the tomb had been rolled away and you find yourself face to face with an angel you've not encountered that before and this angel says what are you looking for he's not here he's still alive and everything in your mind is swirling out of control and you decide I got to tell everybody I want to go tell everybody this good news I thought he was dead but he's alive and I'm going to tell everybody and you know that's going to be dangerous very dangerous because the Romans they might try to kill you but hey you're thinking they killed Jesus and he's doing good so I'm not too worried about that And you decide, I'm going to tell everybody I can tell about this incredible message that Jesus was dead and now he's alive, hate is out, love is in, and the crucified carpenter from Nazareth is the master of the universe. He's alive. You see, what do you think would be going through your mind that Sunday morning if you saw that? What words would be, wow, amazing, incredible. What would you be experiencing that day? You see, there's this tradition at gatherings that like this, it's been going on for a really long time, where somebody will say, Jesus Christ is risen, and everybody will respond, He is risen indeed. That was so weak. (laughs) Jesus Christ is risen. (laughs) He is risen indeed. See, that's why we're here today. This isn't about me. This isn't about Ben and leading us in music. And and this isn't about how to get connected at this church. This isn't about any of that. Over and above, today we're here to celebrate. The tomb is empty. Like, he's not there. That really happened. You see, this is the whole purpose of uh, of why we're here to celebrate today. This is why we sang those songs. This is why we're going to take communion. This is why we're studying God's word. He's risen. I desperately want that to sink in more than anything. So let's pray. Father, I'm overwhelmed. We're not worthy of any of this. To think of where my life could have been personally think of where i call home and who i call my community and my family to think about my actual family and all of it hinges on this truth all of it my whole reality hinges on the truth that we celebrate this morning god may we see clearly how important this is how the resurrection changes everything so god as we study this morning speak speak from your word your servants are here. We're ready to listen. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, according to my wife, I do not have very high standards for movies. Hey, I don't like musicals. Don't email me. Uh, so, like, simple stuff gets me. And if you've been here for a while, you know one of my favorite movies ever is Gladiator. I love that movie. It's just simple enough, right? There's a hero. There's a villain. There's action. There's... Violence, it's good, right? I love the movie. And I love some of the lines that come out of that movie, Like, right? If you've seen Gladiator, you know, you could quote some of these incredible lines that come out of this movie, right? Like, what you do in life echoes into eternity, Alright, And then there's that, the best scene, I think, of really any movie, where he's face-to-face with the emperor for the first time after the, the guy had killed his family, and he says, I'm Maximus Decimus Meridius, of the army, commander of the armies of the north. Father to a slain wife, son. Father to a slain husband, or a slain son. Husband to a slain wife. I'll have my vengeance in this life or the next. And you're sitting there like, get him now, right? Like you're just so into the movie, right? Or how about after he dies? After this incredible warrior Maximus is killed, this he he defeats the evil emperor, he liberates Rome to freedom. If that's what you call what Rome did, and and then. Uh, He liberates them to all kinds of freedom. And then after he's dead and they're getting ready to carry, they they haven't carried him out yet. You hear that line come out. He was a servant of Rome. He's a warrior of Rome. Honor him. And then they go pick him up and they carry him out. And then you know that that's the end of the movie, right? He's dead and, and, and the end of the movie is Maximus dying. Only if you've seen the movie, you know that's not really the end, right? If you've seen Gladiator, you know that it doesn't end with him dying, right? Because they show this other scene, this scene here where he is in a cornfield and reunited with his family. He goes on living after death, and you know he's gone on. And then you hear his friend that had been with him throughout the whole movie kind of whisper, hey, I will see you again, but not yet, not yet, right? And this movie, right, that's supposedly death is supposed to be the end, I'm captivated by the idea that, no, no, Maximus goes on living after life. He's reunited with his family. It's this beautiful thing. And why is it that most of our movies and most of our literature, most of our stories always include some sort of an afterlife scene? I mean, we talk about how death is the end and there is no afterlife, and yet when we write our stories and we make our movies, there's always that scene, a heroic deed A really great action warrior accomplishing his goal is never quite enough. We always have to include, like, hey, and he went on living forever, and there was this afterlife, and I have to ask myself, why is it? Like, all around me in a culture that tells me there is no life after death, that heaven doesn't matter, and that faith is irrelevant, yet we celebrate the fact that there is something going on afterwards. Why? Because deep inside each of us, we know, you feel it, I feel it. We, we desperately desire more than a heroic deed or a life well lived. We desire happily ever after. We desire something happening after we die. We desire it. We all want it. Because we know if death is really the end, then everything we've worked for is irrelevant. Death mocks all of our ambitions and efforts. It just shoves it right in our face. It doesn't matter. There is no meaning. And so we come back to the fact that we want there to be more. We need there to be more. It could just be wishful thinking, or it actually could be that... History supports this truth. That there is life after death. There is so much more. And here's the thing I love about it. Look, I've got family members that are like, hey, if all you care about is life after death, that's like a Christianity's an afterlife insurance policy. That's what they'll say. And I'll say, no, 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 you don't understand. Because when eternity's okay, life is rich and full. When eternity is not something I have to worry about because it's been accomplished for me, then I know right now in my life, everything I do has meaning. Everything I do can echo into that eternity, to quote Gladiator, Twice in one sermon. Uh, everything I do has meaning and significance. Why? Because it's been taken care of for me. I don't have to do anything to earn it. It's been taken care of for me. And that's why we're here to celebrate today. That's why we've preached this series on faith, this incredible chapter in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 11, where are I mean 11 and 12. That's why this chapter is so significant and as we've studied through Hebrews 11 we've learned some pretty incredible things from this great chapter. One of the first things we learned is this that your faith is only as strong is only as strong or capable as the object in which you place your faith. That's the first thing we studied in the series. I mean, you can put faith in a lot of different things that can fail you. There's only one thing that'll never fail you and so we learned you put faith in something that's strong enough to hold the faith that you need it to hold. We also learned from the life of Abraham in the second week when David Lynn was here it, we learn that faith leads to action. It like, compels us to do something. We learned last week that faith works in the ordinary parts of life. Right? David led us through the life of Moses and his parents, people we don't think about often, but just these ordinary people and an extraordinary thing happened because of their faithfulness. And today we're going to learn how faith endures, and we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11 before we actually get to chapter 12, as is the heartbeat of where we want to be. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up. Hebrews 11, toward the end of your Bible... we're going to pick up in verse 32 and, and kind of finish this series with this truth about faith. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me. So he's saying, what more shall I say? What he's meaning is, hey, he has just described all these incredible heroes of the faith. And what I mean by that is this. Like these people who had faith in God who were called to do extraordinary things. And the writer of Hebrews takes chapter 11 and just kind of lists life after life and all the significance that they had, all the great things that they did with their life. And now he gets toward the end of that chapter. He says, hey, what more shall I say? Time would fail me, right? I don't have enough time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. See, this is incredible. He says, I don't have enough time to write all the stories, but many more people, because of their faith and the object in which they placed their faith and the compulsion they had to act in to live it out, man, they did incredible things. I mean, many of them they they pursued justice and achieved justice. They stood up to kings and emperors, and some of these are really fascinating, right? He says, "Hey, some of them shut the mouths of lions." I'm thinking, "Oh, yeah." I don't know if you've ever been around a lion. It's my favorite part of going to the zoo. And we've been at the zoo when the lion kind of got irritated and started roaring. And it doesn't matter where you're at in the Indianapolis Zoo, you hear that lion roaring. They're powerful and they're dangerous and they're incredible. But what story is he referencing? There's a story in your Old Testament about a guy named Daniel, and Daniel is faithful to God, and he is told he needs to bow and worship King Nebuchadnezzar, and he refuses to do so. He says, I'm not going to do that. And so what do they do? They throw him in a den with a bunch of lions, and they're hoping, like, hey, this is the punishment. The king really didn't want to do it, but uh, the king was passive, and he let him get thrown in there. He's like, I'm going to check on you in the morning, hoping things are all right, knowing it's a group of lions that get hungry, they're going to eat. And because of his faith in God, God showed up and protected him. They go check on Daniel the next day, and what happens? He's closed the mouths of these lions. It's unbelievable. And how did he do it? He did it because he believed in God, and God showed up. It also says here that because of their faith, many quenched the power of fire. Well, who's, he, who's he talking about when he says that? These are Daniel's friends. Daniel had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, too, were told they needed to bow and worship a king they refused to worship, and so they were told they were going to get thrown into a furnace, But because of their faith, the furnace was heated up seven times hotter. And they were thrown into that furnace. They were thrown into the fiery furnace, and they did not die. How did they not die? It's because of their faith. God showed up, and they were delivered from the furnace. And the Bible says that not a scratch was on them. Everything was good. How would they do it? They said, hey, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to worship you. We're still going to worship him. This is this pivotal moment where they said, hey, we're putting our faith in an object that's capable of carrying our faith. Throw us in the furnace. Do it. Because no matter what happens, we're still going to worship him. All of these stories he mentions here are fascinating because they, they show us, like, hey, faith is powerful, and we get kind of captivated by that. I mean, faith is so powerful, it's incredible. But each time, it looks like death is inevitable, like disaster and doom are coming upon every single one of the people he listed here, and yet somehow they escape. These miraculous things take place, and they're delivered because of their faith. It's just fascinating when you read through these, and we're captivated by it as a people. We love the stories where it looks like this doom and destruction is bound to happen, but I believed, and so it comes out of here. And so, but the, the problem is, if we get locked into thinking that faith always leads to a good outcome, we're doomed. Many of us think, if I just believe enough, if I just have strong enough faith, if I just believe that God's going to do something, then everything will always work out. And yet, when you read through the pages of the Bible, you don't find this message of comfort and prosperity. It's just not in the pages of Scripture. Sure, it happens. Sometimes they're delivered. Sometimes good things happen. But other times, things don't. This is a picture of Joni Erickson Tada. Joni Erickson Tada. She, a remarkable artist. Uh, some of her art is unbelievable she's an author and a speaker she's inspired hundreds of thousands of people like she has spoken all over the world she's had a prolific ministry in in her life when she was 17 years old she went swimming with with some people she she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and she broke her neck as soon as she jumped in she hit her head and instantly became a quadriplegic paralyzed from the neck down No, no ability to do much from that moment on 17 years old Well, her friends, she would write about her friends coming to her, very well-meaning friends. They came to her and they told her, hey, if you just believe, God will heal you. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's what they told her. And fortunately for us and many other people, she didn't believe that. She didn't believe that that advice was sound or biblical, she did not believe that. She didn't believe that if I just believe hard enough, if I just have strong enough faith, then everything is always going to be comfortable and good for me in this life. She didn't believe that, and that's good for us. See, her friends conceptually ended their understanding of faith right in the middle of verse 35. That's where their, their idea of faith, their concept of faith ended. This, this idea of faith being lived out ended in verse 35, but for her it didn't. See, for her it kept going, and for the author of Hebrews, lucky for us, he keeps going too. Let's pick up halfway through verse 35. Women received back their dead from resurrection. Then he says this, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others, that's a key word. You might circle that in your Bible or highlight it. Others, for some it works this way. For others, it doesn't always go well. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is eye opening. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable when you think about it. See, some, everything really goes well for, and we see that and we're like, man, I want that to be me. And I think that's a fair thing. You should desire good for your life. But then it says, others, it didn't go so well. Either way, their faith was strong. Like when their faith was, things were good, God used it to do incredible things. And then you read through the Bible and you realize when things didn't go well, God used it to do incredible things. We're still talking about these people. Thousands of years later, because their life is echoing into eternity, even though their life here on earth didn't go well, because they had a bigger picture. They saw life goes beyond here and now. There is life after death. They believed that with all their hearts. They were willing to stand up for that, and they endured great difficulty because of that. And if we think that somehow having faith, man, I wish, genuine, just all cards on the table. I wish I could get up here on Easter and plead with you to make a decision to follow Jesus because everything was going to get better. Everything's comfortable, right? And cuddly and warm and great. And all of us Christians are always happy and things always go well for us, but that's just not reality. Sometimes cancer isn't cured. Sometimes the job, it's not saved. Sometimes the spouse doesn't decide to stay. Sometimes your kids, they don't make the decisions you wish they would have made. Sometimes it just doesn't work out the way we want it to work out. I mean, Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, he says, hey, in this life, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble, but take heart. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Even when it's dark and difficult and bad, take heart. And so, the question I have if I'm reading through Hebrews 11 is how do I do that? Man, how do I do what Jesus just told me to do? How do I take heart? How does my life have significance? I mean, that's what he's saying here. What the writer of Hebrews is saying and and what Jesus is saying is that, hey, take heart because your life matters. What you do matters. What you do in this life absolutely matters. And it matters because there's life after death, life keeps going. And so your life matters. And you look at Scripture and you see it, God working in both situations. I mean, take the book of Acts. You read through the book of Acts. You see people like the Apostle Peter. Here's a guy who uh, is only serving people and loving people. You get to Acts 16, and he and his friend Silas, they're beaten. I mean, they're really beaten up. They're just tortured and beaten up, and they're thrown in this dungeon, and you're thinking to yourself, why is that happening to a guy who just wanted to help people? Why is that? God, he has incredible faith. He's the Apostle Paul. He's got an S on his chest and his cape blows in the wind. He's super Christian. Why is that happening to him? And then you realize, what is it that gave Paul the ability that midnight hour of that night to be singing worship songs to the Lord? And then the Lord shows up. It happens. Sometimes things go well. Sometimes things go bad. And all the while, God's working. No matter what you're experiencing or going through, the text here tells us God's always working, but how do we take heart? How do we keep that in the front of our minds? He continues in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, because of all these truths that we've just talked about, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so we have a great cloud, we have wonderful, incredible examples of things going well and things not going well, but faith being the steady neutralizer, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted an incredible passage of scripture but he kind of tells us here here's how you take heart When things aren't going well, here's how faith matters. Here's why the resurrection matters. Guys, here's why Easter doesn't end on Sunday when you show up to church and celebrate it. But it continues into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and for every day for the rest of your life, if you'll have it. He says the first thing is we have to run with endurance. He uses this uh, analogy of a race. It's talking about like an athlete who has this goal in mind, like, hey, I want my life to echo into eternity. I want my life to have significance. I want to see Jesus. I want to meet Jesus. And and he says, so you run with endurance. Things get difficult for an athlete. What do they do? They just keep going. They push hard. And the best athletes are the ones who can endure a little bit of difficulty and suffering so that they can get to that finish line. He moves on from saying that, like, you, you don't just endure, but you endure a certain way. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You look to Jesus. This is fascinating. What does it mean when you fix your eyes on something, when you look to Jesus, what, what does that really mean and look like? Ladies, men, everybody here, you ever been lost in a book where you're, like, you're reading a book and uh, you look up and it's been two hours and you just can't believe that? Like, I cannot believe two hours just passed. That was a good book. Doesn't always happen, but like, you just kind of get lost in reading a book. Or maybe, guys, uh, maybe you've been watching a ball game and you realize, I just watched that entire game and I know a lot of people talk to me. I don't know what they said. I don't know what's going on. I'm just kind of locked in. You're just zoned in on this game. You're completely fixated by what's in front of you. Nothing else can be focused on. It's this one thing that keeps your attention. That's what he means when he says fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, Consider him. Look to him. But he says you can't just look to him like any other thing. It doesn't just say just look to Jesus. And he doesn't just leave it at that. You can't just fix your eyes on Jesus as though he's one among many things that you can look to to help you. He actually gets very specific. He says, look, fix your eyes on Jesus this way. And if you don't look at him this way, then you're not looking at him the right way. And if you don't look at him the right way, you're not going to understand what he's done for you. And if you don't understand what he's done for you, you will sink. If you don't understand what he's done for you, then the thing that is weighing you down that he just got done talking about and the sin that is clinging so closely to you, will it'll bury you. It'll push you down, down. Why? Because you're not looking at him the right way. And he says, okay, well, how do you look at him? He says, you fix your eyes on Jesus The author and perfecter. That's really important. Here's the thing about author. It means he got it started. He started this whole thing. He's the one who authored what it looks like to live as a Christian in the world. Okay, he's the one that started. Here's the thing though. Every religion, every worldview in the entire world has an author. Someone got it started. Somebody said, here's how you do this. Here's how you live this way. They provided a book. They said, go this way. They said, do this. It was their teaching. And they're the author. They said, hey, you go do this. But then they give it to you, and it's all up to you. So they're the author. and They say, this is how you live. This is the most productive way to live under my ideology or my religion or my worldview. Go live this way. Only Christianity. It's the only worldview philosophy or at all in the entire world forever that has ever had the perfecter. It has the author and the perfector, and this word "perfector" is fascinating. It's the Greek word archagos, and I think it's best translated champion. Okay, so archagos it means champion. Here's why that's important: in Roman and Greek mythology, this is fascinating. So, like you might, this might be the thing you get from today's sermon. All right, in, in Greek and Roman um, history, they would have these champions, and a champion would come in and they would fight on behalf of people. This is the same word he's using. So let's say you have a group of people and they're held hostage by a villain, a bad guy. Let's say a dragon, right? In Greek mythology, they have a dragon or some sort of evil person who's holding people hostage. Well, you would need an archegos. You need an ego, someone beyond yourself. You would need a champion to come in and rescue you from what was holding you captive. I mean, this is, this is how they taught it. And so what they would do is this champion could come in and he could save you one of two ways. The champion would come in and he would take the darts or the arrows or the poison from the enemy. He would receive it on himself, giving all those held captive time to escape. So that's what he'd do. He'd come in and he boom, he'd take the blow so that everybody else could escape. The other way that the archagoss or the champion would save people is he would come in and it would be like Hercules. He'd come in with like muscles and power and he would challenge the enemy to mortal combat, right? And he would say, hey, we're going to fight. And, and then he would overpower the enemy. He would completely destroy the enemy, thus freeing those who were captive. Here's why that's fascinating. Only in Christianity do we have the author and the champion, author and the archagos, the one who comes in. On Friday of Easter week, of Holy Week, Jesus came in and as a champion stood and absorbed everything that was coming toward us on that cross. All of the punishment, all the pain from that villain, from death, he absorbed it onto himself. But what's fascinating is he was the champion completely because on Sunday he rose from the dead and completely dominated death in Mortal combat. He won the victory. He was, he was the champion because he took what was intended for us on himself, but then he defeated the enemy who was weighing us down. Jesus is the champion. Jesus is the champion that we've all needed for all of life. And when you're in Christ, when you are a Christian, You have to understand how this affects your life. It says he is the Archagost, the champion. He has done for you what you could not do for yourself. Why? Because the Bible says that we are sinners, and the punishment for our sin is death, meaning we're going to die, meaning that's the enemy we're up against. Death is coming our direction, and it's going to call due the debt that we owe it. But our champion steps in the way, and he says, no, 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 you can absorb that payment onto me. I will take it, and not only that, I'm going to defeat it, so you can't ever come looking for another charge. It's once and for all. It's beautiful and incredible because it frees you. When that is your reality, you are free to live a different kind of life. You are free to not worry about what death might bring, and then you're free to understand that when I experience difficulty and pain in life, it it can be a lot of things, but the one thing it can't be is a punishment from God. You understand that? You're going through a hard time, a difficult time in your life when it just looks like everything's against you and you're just feeling pain and suffering. It is not a punishment from God because this is what we know about God. God will never take two payments for the same debt. God would never collect two payments for the same debt. Your debt, your eternal debt has been paid once and for all on that cross. And when he resurrected, he defeated it once and for all. It is over with. You don't have to come to life and live your life preparing for a collector to come do, asking you to pay that penalty. And the message of Easter says that if we can trust in Jesus as our champion, he's paid for that. And now we live in freedom. And the beauty of this message, this Easter message, is this, God came for us and he did what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's beautiful. It's resurrection. I'm scared to death because I think sometimes we forget that. Those of us that are familiar with the church, familiar with Easter, you knew you were going to get a resurrection message when you showed up here and it just kind of comes in one ear and out the other and we can kind of forget it. We can forget that our God loved us so much, he recklessly came after us. It's just, nothing was going to stop him. In 2008 film, Taken, and yes, I have successfully now preached an Easter sermon talking about Gladiator and Taken. Um, So mark that one down in the history books. Uh, Liam Neeson uh, plays a guy named Brian Mills. He's an ex-CIA agent. And he's been trained in a, a just all kinds of combat. He just, so much incredible combat. And his daughter is on vacation in France, and she gets kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. And so then he has this conversation while she's being kidnapped. It's just this epic conversation with the person kidnapping her. And he says, hey, I've, I'm going to find you. And I'm going to kill you. And they don't take his advice. They're like, ah, we better not leave, touch her. Instead, they take her. And like every other action movie, he goes after her. And he goes after her with such determination, nothing is going to stop him, right? There's no red tape that he doesn't cross over. There's no political standard that he doesn't violate. There's no multi-million dollar industry that has enough resources to stop this guy from getting to his daughter. Now, look, this is a violent movie. At the end of the movie, the daughter runs up to him as he finds her on a yacht as she's been sold as a prostitute to a sheik. He finds her. He liberates her. She comes running to him, falling into his arms. She says, Daddy, you came for me. And he says, I told you I would. I told you I would. Now, here, here's why that's fascinating to me. Look, it's a violent movie. I'm not telling you to go watch it. But look, when I watch that movie, I, for some reason, I just think about God. I think about God. Because, man, nothing was going to stop him from coming for us. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, there was no evil, no pain, no sin. Nothing was going to stop this father from coming after his children. Not a Roman cross, not even death. Nothing would stop him so that one day we could run into his arms and we could say, Father, you came for me. And he would say, I told you. I told you I would. See, this is the message of Easter, that God came for you. There was no cost too high. No cost too high. No debt too big. He came and did for you everything that he had to do so that you could be reunited to him and you could stop trying to live under your own power and control. You could be liberated. You could live free. I love it. It's the greatest story. It's the greatest truth in all of human history. And look, when you know that that's your truth, you know that you can do these two things I want to encourage you to do. The first thing is this. You can stop trying to be your own champion. Stop trying to be your own archegos. Stop trying to say, I can handle this on my own, and I'll take on this penalty for death. I don't mind it, man. I'll live a good enough life that in the afterlife, I'm not going to be able to be forgotten. I'll be able to be morally good. I can take on death by myself, and I don't need Jesus to do that for me. But here's the thing. We humans have a really bad track record with conquering death. We're powerless, man. We can't defeat death on our own. It is an enemy you cannot go up against. It is a weight you are not designed to carry. It is weighing you down. It is clinging closely to you. And the Bible says, put it away. Get rid of it. And the only way to do that is the second thing I want to encourage you to do is fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of your faith. And here's the connection with that father that loves us. For the joy. For the joy set before him endured the cross. You understand, Jesus coming after you brought him joy. The joy of being reunited to you outweighed the pain of the cross. The joy of having you fall into his arms and saying, you came for me. Made the suffering he endured worth it. Friends, many of you don't believe this, man. I'm telling you, I I just believe it with all my heart. God is crazy about you. All of you. No matter the mistakes you've made, the people that you've hurt, the decisions that have gone bad, the sin that's weighing in on your life, he loves you, he's come for you, and nothing has stopped him, not a cross, not death, and he did it for you, you were worth it. He loves you, and he's crazy about you. And you have to fix your eyes on him, not just as the author, not just the one that tells you how to go live, but the Perfector, the one who lived for you, the one who died for you, the one who resurrected for you. Two more quick things. This is written in the plural. This is written to a group of people, not an individual. It has individual implications, but it is written, we do this life together. We walk through this together. You're not meant to do this by yourself. So if you're here and you call New Hope your home, or you're here and this is your first time, we want you to get connected here, not because we want numbers and we want to count. We understand that when I try to walk through this by myself, I fail. I fail. But when I have the right people surrounding me and around me, they help me fix my eyes on Jesus and keep my fix on him as author and perfecter. And that's what we want for you. We want you to get connected around here. Second thing, and I'll close with this, is one of the best ways that we keep our gaze fixed on Jesus is this moment we have in our services every week called communion. Where we gather together as God's people, and we genuinely have it in here, not because it's tradition, not because we've done it because we've always done it, not because if we don't do it, we're just horrible. It's because we come to know that this next moment we're about to enter into here in just a few moments, this moment is this incredible moment where it helps me fix my gaze on him. And I remember he's not just my author, he's my archegos, he's my champion, he's my perfecter. And I can use communion as a time to recenter my life on that resurrection truth. That I don't have to do this in my own power. And so we're gonna pray. And then Ben's gonna come out and they're gonna lead us in a song. And I want that song to kind of get you prepared. And after that song, we'll take communion together. And we'll come up and finish out our services after that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being our champion. What a truth. God, I just, I know that there are people here today because I've been there and I am there all the time that are trying to carry their own their own weight. They're trying to carry their sin. They're trying to handle it on their own. And they're frustrated and they're tired and they, they're at the end of their ropes. And they just need to look up and realize that their father's coming for them. He, is, he has come and nothing stopped him, not a cross, not death, that you came and you overcame all of it. And you did that for us so that we could just let go of that weight, stop carrying it and fully surrender and fall into your arms and say, thank you for coming for me. Because I couldn't do this by myself. Father, my prayer is in these next few moments, we would worship in a very real way. We would worship through this next song. We would center our minds and our hearts. And those of us in Christ, God, would take of communion. And those of us that are not in Christ would continue to wrestle with the truth that their heavenly Father came for them and wants to know them intimately. Wherever we're at, God, let these next few minutes be focused completely and totally on your son, Jesus, our champion, our author, and our perfecter. And we pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Thank you.